this morning's scripture reading is from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. You can follow along on the screen or follow along in your Bible. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe you came in here this morning and you can empathize and relate to some of the songs that we just sang. Songs that speak of sorrow. The reality is this world that we live in, which is fallen, it's a broken world, it's a sin-filled world, it's full of sorrow. And those rare moments when you are not experiencing suffering or sorrow personally yourself, someone close to you likely is. And I think that it is, before we go any further this morning, I, I think I just want to point out 
uh, something that's very important for us, which is in a world full of sorrow, in a life that's full of sorrow, we serve a God who identifies as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, that our God, the second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ, has walked in this world. He has suffered in this world. He died in this world. But he has risen. And all who put their faith in him, all who have their hope anchored in him, will escape the sorrows of this world. And he has promised us in the scriptures that when he comes again, he will do away with all sorrow. There will be no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. It'll be something of the past. It'll be gone entirely. And so we gather Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to remind ourselves of that great hope. Keeping that in mind, let's go back to Ruth, chapter 1, the passage that was just read. Last week, we kick-started this series, Ruth, there is a Redeemer. And in five verses, things went from bad to worse, if you recall. There was a decade of disaster within five verses. A famine in the land caused an Israelite family to be displaced from their home in Bethlehem and forced to sojourn to the land of Moab. They get to Moab, and while in Moab, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, the father of two sons, dies. Naomi's sons marry Moabite women. Ten years go by, they're unable to have children. And then those sons die and join their father in the grave, leaving a total of three widows behind, hearts that are full of sorrow. And when it seemed that all was lost, we looked ahead to verse 6, and we see a glimmer of hope. It says that Naomi had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. God intervened in the last moment when there seemed to be no hope, when all seemed to be lost. This morning we're looking at verse 6 through 22 and we're looking at the account of Naomi's journey back to her home from which she was displaced. What we see here in this text is that in the midst of great sorrow and grief and loss, there's also great love and great loyalty and great lamentation. And all three of these things are vitally important when you're in the midst of great sorrow. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Love, Loyalty, and Lamentation. First thing I want you to see in the text is the love amid the sorrow. Specifically, God's love. Look at verse 6 and 7. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. 
For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. The first thing I want you to see here is the grace of God. God sent word to Naomi while she was working in the fields of Moab that he had ended the famine and he had made a way for her to go home. That's a kindness of God. That's God's grace. And that's God's grace and kindness not only to Naomi, but to all of God's people back in the land. Remember, this was during the times when the judges ruled. This was a lawless time. This was a time full of apostasy. This was a time when God's people were in a cyclical, habitual way, turning away from God, suffering the consequences, then crying out for help, and God mercifully and graciously, in His kindness and steadfast love, visiting them, rescuing them through a judge. This relief to the famine was undoubtedly God's grace and kindness and response to not just Naomi's cry for help, but to his people's cry at large for help. God is gracious. This is the Old Testament. God has not changed. He has always been. He is now, and he forever will be a God of grace. It was when we were sinners that God sent Jesus to die for our sin. It is when we were sinners that Christ came to lay down his life to pay the penalty for our sin. It is when we were sinners, we were dead, not just malnourished, and the bread of life came to revive us and sustain us. And whoever humbly acknowledges the grace of God in Christ Jesus, whoever humbly acknowledges that God is kind to sinners, whoever humbles himself and repents of his sin and puts his faith in this God will be saved and will be sustained by the bread of life, Jesus Christ. It appears that initially all three widows began this journey back. But shortly after they left, Naomi has a change of heart. So she makes a change of plans. She calls an audible here in verse 8. Look at verse 8. And what I want you to see here is, is Naomi's love for these daughters-in-law. Look at this. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Naomi encouraged them to return to their biological mother's house, their Moabite mother's house. 
This would be a better situation for them. This would be a safer situation. It would be a more stable situation for these young women than to go with their mother-in-law to a foreign land that they're not from. And Naomi doesn't just encourage them to go back. She says a prayer. She, she prays a blessing over them as they go back. She says, may the Lord, Yahweh, deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, meaning her sons, and with me. This prayer reveals several things. Number one, it reveals that Naomi still knows that her God, Yahweh, is kind. This is the word hased. This is the word for steadfast love and kindness. This is a word that describes God that will never not describe God. This will always describe God. He's always kind. She says, may God deal with you in the way that you've dealt with my sons all the way up till their death. May God deal with you in the kindness that you've shown me, your mother-in-law, as I've grieved the loss of my sons. This reveals that these Moabite wives, they loved their sons well, and it reveals that they loved their mother-in-law well, and that their mother-in-law loved them. Look at verse 9. Naomi says, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So at first she's sending them back to their mother's house, but then she says, May you find rest in the house of your husbands. What is she saying? She's saying, go back to your mother's home in hopes that in time you will find a Moabite man who will be your husband. That you will remarry. That you will find a man who can do for you what I cannot do for you. I cannot be your protector. I cannot be your provider like they can. I cannot give you children the way they can offer you that. There is mutual love and affection that these women share for one another here. And I don't want us to miss that. It says that Naomi kissed them and they all lifted up their voices and wept. This was not an easy goodbye. And as we look at verse 10, we see that these daughters refused. Both of them refused to leave her side. They loved her and they wanted to be loyal to her. It says that they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi's love was insistent. Look at her love in verse 11 through 13. It says, Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
three verses, three times, Naomi refers to these Moabite women as my daughters. She loved them as her own daughters. And I think that this repetition is emphasizing the fact that they will always be her daughters, whether they stay in Moab or not. They're her daughters. They have a place in her heart and her and theirs. There's great love here mingled with sorrow. But Naomi is urging them. She's insisting that they turn back. She says, turn back twice. She says to turn back for their sake. She doesn't have sons in her womb to offer them. And if there was some miracle by chance, a man from Moab chose to marry this Israelite woman, and and that night they had a child. I mean, it was some miracle that happened that she could offer two sons to these two women. Even then, they'd have to wait till the sons grew up. No, my daughters. Turn back. It would be unwise for these young widows to refrain from remarrying. The New Testament attests to this. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Naomi is resolute. No, you're you're not coming with me. Her heart is broken. Personally, but it's also broken for their sake. This is deep love. She would rather be the one widow of sorrow and let these two young widows be set free to form a new life, to trailblaze a new life, to have some hope for the future. When Naomi says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, It's important that you know that this phrase was used many times in the Old Testament, usually in reference to God's judgment against Israel's enemies. And so what is Naomi communicating but that she feels like an enemy of God in this moment? She feels like God's hand is going out against her because she and God are at enmity. Surely you have felt something like that in your lifetime. God, why this? God, are you coming against me? What have I done? There are many people in the Bible who felt something very similar to what Naomi is feeling right here. Job, Elijah, Jeremiah, all cried out to God in a very similar way, questioning even in their hearts, am I your enemy, Lord? Have you forsaken me, God? If so, why? And in a way, it's very comforting to read this because it reminds us that we're not alone if and when we too feel forsaken by God abandoned by God, afflicted by God at points in our life. This is an opportunity to be driven to the gospel and be reminded of the truth that all who take refuge in Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, 
are not forsaken by God and never will be forsaken by God. That is God's promise. The God who never changes. The God who never lies. He will not forsake us or leave us. Matthew 27, 46. We need to go here right now together. Matthew 27, 46, it records that while Jesus is hanging on the cross, he intentionally lifts himself up and painfully takes in a breath of air. And this is some of the last words that he utters. And he cries out, it says, with a loud voice, desiring that those around his cross would hear and he said, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, the messianic song, Psalm 22. And he is telling the people at the foot of his cross, and he is telling us today, as we come to his feet, in our sorrow, that He was forsaken, that we would be forgiven. That Jesus Christ was forsaken in this moment by God the Father for our sake. And not only did He preach it on the cross, but there's visible symbols of this moment of darkness. The earth quaked that day. The sky was dark that day, in that hour, displaying in the heavens that this was the greatest moment of sorrow ever in heaven or on earth. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that you, friend, through faith in Him, would never be forsaken by God. That is a deeper love. That is a more intense love than what Naomi and Orpah and Ruth share for one another. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. After Christ resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven, right before that ascension, he said, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I will never forsake you, is what he's saying. And I'm just going to read a portion of Romans 8 again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Shall tribulation? No, Naomi. Or distress? No. Persecution? Famine? No. Nakedness? Danger? The sword? He says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Use your imagination. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Period. There is a Redeemer in the heavens 
whose love is far more insistent than Naomi's love for her daughters-in-law. And you need to know that today, whether you are in sorrow or whether you are in a relationship with someone who is in sorrow. Second thing I want you to see is the loyalty that's amid sorrow here. Look at verse 10. We're going to backtrack a little. It says, They said to her, the daughters, No, we will return with you to your people. We will return with you. This is Orpah and Ruth. And so I want to just take a moment to honor Orpah, okay? Because she didn't budge the first time Naomi said, go back to your real mom's house, your biological mother, go back to her house. She said, no, we will return. And now she's submitting to her mother-in-law's wishes as she urges a second time, go back. Okay, Naomi, I'll go back. And she's going back in tears. And the reason why I bring that up is because Ruth's loyalty to Naomi is not in contrast to the lack of loyalty in Orpah. Ruth's loyalty to Naomi is extraordinary loyalty in comparison to ordinary loyalty. Look at verse 14. For the second time, it says that they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And this is the only time in human history, don't miss it, when a hug is better than a kiss. She clung to her while Orpah kissed her. And again, Orpah's kiss is not, it's not like the kiss of Judas. It's not a kiss of betrayal. It's a kiss of farewell. It's a kiss that Orpah never wanted to give Naomi. One theologian put it this way, the fields of Moab looked far greener than the land of Israel with that simple, sensible choice. Orpah marched off out of the pages of the Bible. She was reasoned with to walk away. And in contrast to this reasonable decision, we see The loyalty of Ruth, which is as insistent as Naomi's insistent love for her daughters. Look at verse 15. Naomi says to Ruth, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. This is revealing. Naomi knew that this decision to stay in Moab would mean more than just physical comfort. She knew that this was a spiritual decision that they would have to make as well. It involved their souls. Orpah returned to her people and to her gods. No doubt doubt it was the false god Chemosh which was one of the the false deities that was worshipped in Moab at that time. And so, Naomi's not the hero here. She's not the protagonist here. God is always the protagonist here. 
Naomi cared about these girls and her love was deep for these girls, but Naomi apparently was more concerned about the short term for these girls than the long term. She was more concerned about the temporal life than the eternal life. But even if Naomi were to offer all the kingdoms of the world to Ruth, Ruth would not be swayed. She had lived with God's people for 10 years. She had come to know the one true God, the God of Israel. And here in this moment, she's counting the cost of discipleship. She's not just counting the cost of following Naomi, she is counting the cost of following Naomi's God to a foreign land where one commenter said, She'd be about as desirable as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. She's not going to find love in Bethlehem. The likelihood of her finding love there in comparison to staying in Moab is greatly diminished. And yet, she's going to go with Naomi. Look at verse 16. She says, do not urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord, Yahweh, do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Andre Lacoque makes a very interesting comparison between the Moabite Ruth and the father of the Moabite nation, Lot. He said, Ruth's determination to leave her homeland contrasts with the reluctance of Lot and his family to leave Sodom. Lot's wife turned back and became a pillar of salt. Ruth was resolute that she would never turn back. Ruth's going where Naomi's going. Ruth's lodging where Naomi's lodging. She's going to stay with her. She's going to live with her. She's going to embrace Naomi's people. She's going to assimilate herself into Naomi's community. She is a Gentile in preparation of being grafted in to the people of God there in Bethlehem. She is going to worship and serve Naomi's God, Yahweh. And she speaks of Him using His personal covenant name here, Yahweh. She says... I'm calling on Yahweh as a witness of the covenant that I'm making with you, Naomi. I'm not turning back. This is not Ruth adding Yahweh to the plate of her syncretism and spirituality. This is Ruth renouncing every other deity, false deity, that exists and saying, I'm going to worship the one true God, period. Ruth's commitment 
It goes beyond the journey back to Bethlehem. It goes beyond the rest of her life on earth. It goes into the grave, friends. This is, I'm going to die where you die, and I will be buried where you are buried. They're not going to ship my coffin back to Moab. I'm going to be in the grave with you, whether it's in the ground or in a tomb. Her commitment, six feet deep. It's, it's not even till death do we part. It's not even in death shall we part. This is intense loyalty amid intense sorrow. This kind of loyalty is very important. When, when someone in your life is suffering, they need loyalty like this. They need love like this. They need you to be with them. To suffer and grieve with them. You may never know exactly what they're feeling or what they're going through, but you can try to understand. This passage is often read at weddings. I think a lot of times people are sitting out in the, in the audience at the wedding and they have no idea that the passage is referring to one woman speaking to another woman. A mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, the daughter-in-law making a commitment to her mother-in-law. I mean, I think that probably goes over the head of many people. But the reality is there's good reason to actually bring this into a wedding ceremony. The, the word here, clung, that Ruth clung to her, it's the same verb in Hebrew, davak, that's used in Genesis 2.24 about marriage. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife or hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And it's the same word that's used in the context of our relationship to God. We hold fast to God as he holds fast to us, friends, especially in those moments of sorrow. Sometimes God uses suffering and sorrow to bring us back to him, to cling to him, so that we would know him. The God of all comfort. To give us a ministry of comforting those who are in all kinds of horrific suffering with the comfort that we ourselves received from God. It says in Deuteronomy 20, uh, 10 verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him. Hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear, he is your praise, he is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down into Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So why did they cling to God? What was the reason for Israel at this time when Deuteronomy 10 verse 20 was written? What was the reason to hold fast to their God? He's a redeemer God. They went into Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for 100 years. He brought them out of Egypt by his grace, his steadfast love, his kindness. He's a redeemer. And we have the full canon of Scripture now, and we know that like the Israelites who were in bondage, destined to death, 
We too were in bondage to sin, destined to taste death and death eternal, and yet God intervened. He sent His Son into the world, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who through repentance and faith in Him alone have the shackles of our slavery to sin broken. We're set free. We are shackled to Him, bondservants of Christ, to walk in newness of life with joy amidst sorrow, awaiting His return when there's no more sorrow. That's why we cling to God. We have reason to cling to God. We have reason to cling to God because He clings to us. He will hold us fast. Look at verse 18. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more. This insistent loyalty, it left Naomi speechless. And as we are reminded of God's insistent faithfulness and loyalty to us, His unwillingness to let us go, though yet we do stumble and fall again and again, when we see that love and that loyalty and that perseverance of Him towards us, we cling to Him. And sometimes we sing and we shout praises to God and sometimes we're just left in awe, in silent awe. Why would you do that? And I can tell you with complete confidence, it's not because of you. It's because of Him. It's because of the goodness of God. It's because He's not a liar. He's loyal. Naomi and Ruth, they begin their journey home, both of them together. Once they arrive Naomi would break her silence with a lament. That's my third point. Look at verse 19. We see lamentation amid sorrow. It says, So that the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? And I don't want you to miss this first. They made it back to Bethlehem. During a very lawless time, God's grace is seen in the fact that two women, widows, travel to Bethlehem and they arrive safely in Bethlehem. But then the people of Bethlehem, they come out. It says the whole town's there. And they're stirred. And that means greatly excited. So there's excitement and also shock and kind of confusion. And I think so. Not sure. Yay. But are you Naomi? Is this Naomi? Ten years can age you. I mean, it can. I look back on, on ten years ago myself and I go, who is that young lad, you know? But the 10 years that Naomi just experienced, they can change a person inside and out. She's not the same person as who she was when she left Bethlehem. Maybe she used to dress a little nicer, look a little nicer, have a pleasant demeanor that matched the meaning of her name, pleasant. Maybe there's a scowl where there used to be a smile. Naomi's eyes, which are the windows 
to her soul are more sad and cold when they used to be bright and warm. There's gray hair and wrinkles where the stressful and sorrowful decade wore away at her. And the irony, I think, friends, is that she's home, and yet she might be in more grief in this moment than she was on the journey or even when she was still in Moab. Why? Because she's looking around at places that she is familiar with, faces she's familiar with. She's reminded of good times, memories with her husband and her boys growing up that are gone. And so what does she do? She cries out with a lament. Look at verse 20 and 21. She said to the townspeople, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? This is a true lament. A lamentation, a lament, it is a passionate expression of grief, sorrow, and even regret at times. A, a lament is something that we probably could participate more in and it would be good for your soul and mine because we experience great sorrow and grief and loss and there's times of regret. The Bible records several reasons why people should lament. Here's a good one to start with. We should lament when we have sinned against God. I'm going to read that definition for you again. It is a passionate expression of grief, regret, or sorrow. When was the last time you shed a tear for your sin against God or your neighbor? If we're not careful, our heart will harden one degree at a time over the course of a sorrowful life in a fallen world. Keep it warm, keep it soft, keep crying when it is appropriate. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, make it genuine. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation with regret, without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. True repentance is agreeing with God. It's saying, God, I agree with you in tears. I agree with, agree with you that my sin is as bad as you say it is. My sin is deserving of what Christ endured on the cross. That's what my sin just earned. That. And yet you've shown me kindness in that cross. And I'm sorry. And I accept the free gift of your mercy. I cannot earn your favor. There is no reciprocity in this grace at the cross at Calvary. It's just your kindness. It's a free gift. When we see our sin the way that God sees it, we lament over it. Another reason why we should lament is 
when we feel helpless and hopeless. And there are many times in our lives when you feel helpless. You feel like, I don't know what to do. I, there seems to be no hope here. Like, what are we going to do? Helpless and hopeless about the current state of your marriage. Helpless and hopeless about the situation with your child. Helpless and hopeless about the situation with your parents who are aging. Helpless and hopeless about a situation at work. Helpless and hopeless about a friendship that just doesn't seem like it could be reconciled now. Some people turn in their helplessness and hopelessness and with great fear and they, they turn their lament into a complaint. I think we see a little bit of that with Naomi here. It's not a perfect lament. But Christians should turn their fearful laments into prayer, into supplications, not complaints or accusations against God. King Jehoshaphat, he demonstrated this kind of lamentation when Israel was under attack. He didn't know what to do. He was the king and he didn't know what to do. So what did he do? Second Chronicles 20 verse 12 says that he called all Israel together and led them in a national cry to the Lord, a lament. And this is what he said, we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God honored that lament and he defeated their enemies. Sometimes our Father in heaven who is a redeemer, just wants his children on earth to cry out to him for help. Cry out to him for help. If you've ever responded to the cry of a child when they're feeling helpless and hopeless, and you feel like there's some semblance of love in your heart for them, and compassion in your heart for them, remember that the greatest father on earth is evil in comparison to the father in heaven. His love, intense for us. His love, intensely loyal for us. He welcomes laments from us. And the truth is, you and I aren't going to lament perfectly. And if you're going to wait until you've got all your ducks in a row before you cry out to God, it's going to be too late. You need to lament in the moment and you need to learn from your lamenting over time. You may lament tonight and you may have to re repent in the morning and say, God, there was some accusation there. There was some bitterness in my heart as it was in Naomi's. Forgive me for that. And his mercies will meet you. They're new every morning. And I'm not asking you to be irreverent towards God. Approach him in a reverent lament. But don't try to approach him in perfection. He is your father in Christ. You are his beloved child. Lament. Naomi, it says, she went away full and the Lord brought her back empty. And this is in stark contrast to the famines of the past where God's people left empty, but they returned full. Abraham, Jacob, they came back to the land with more wealth, more possessions, all kinds of good stuff. And that is not the situation that Naomi is in here. She has lost everything and everyone that she once loved. 
And so she desires to have her name changed. She says, bring me the birth certificate. Let's change it right now. I used to be known as pleasant, the meaning of Naomi. I I would prefer to be called bitter because that is more suitable for the condition that I'm in now. I'm not the same woman I was. And that word Mara, that name Mara, bitter, it's got a history behind it. It's linked to rebellion against God. Exodus chapter 15. And what's interesting is it's rebellion against God for a perceived lack that God didn't give them water. And so they bitterly grumbled against him. Now here's what's really beautiful is that as we will see as we continue in Ruth, the Lord responds to Naomi's bitter lament with the sweetness of his grace and redemption. In the same way that he made the water sweet for the grumbling Israelites in Exodus 15. While Naomi discards her name, she does not discard her God. She actually uses two of his names here in this passage. The Almighty and Yahweh. She acknowledges his sovereignty. She doesn't deny his existence. Again, it's an imperfect lament, but it's a lament. Look with me at verse 22 and we'll close. So Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This closing verse, it tells us that there is a new season beginning. Literally, it's the beginning of barley harvest. And yet there's also a new season and a new chapter of life that's about to begin for Naomi and for Ruth. Unknown to Naomi at this point, God has graciously prepared a redemption that awaits her in those harvest fields. Unknown to Naomi at this point, God has graciously provided redemption through the young woman who Naomi was trying to dissuade from coming with her to Bethlehem. Where is God in our suffering and in our sorrow? He's present. What is God doing in our suffering and in our sorrow? He's causing us to cling to him. And as we cling to him, and as we are mindful of his presence, we're becoming more like the redeemer who he sent to redeem everything that was broken. How do we respond to what we've seen here in this text? I think at first we just need to acknowledge that we're a lot like Naomi in a lot of ways. There's a temptation when things are bad to assume that ah, God doesn't exist. He can't exist. Or maybe we can't deny His existence. We just know Him and we know that that's just not true. Creation bears witness to the Creator. We know you're there, but it just feels like you're so distant. 
maybe we are tempted to believe the lie that he's not good or that he doesn't love us or that he's forsaken us. Or maybe even we're tempted to believe that, oh yeah, he's sovereign, but he's sovereignly out to get us. In our sorrow, we need to be reminded of the gospel. Friends, against whom did God Almighty's hand go out against? Was it you? Was it me? Or was it his sinless son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God that you would be spared. And in all our times of great sorrow, we need to remember that. Because it is the cross of Christ that reminds us that God loves us. It is the cross of Christ that reminds us that God is loyal to us. And it is the cross of Christ that invites us to lament in our sorrow. A man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, he knows what suffering is, and he has compassion for us who suffer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us a window into Naomi's sorrow. Help us by your Holy Spirit within us. In our times of great sorrow, to trust that you love us, that you have not forsaken us, and that you welcome our laments. Help us endure suffering and sorrow by clinging to you, our Redeemer, the way that Ruth clung to Naomi. Help us to love one another well in times of sorrow. Help us to show great loyalty to one another and offer the ministry of presence to one another and allow each other to imperfectly lament in our grieving. Amen.